Welcome back to The Wrestling Room, and I want to start today's teaching with three quotes that build one upon the other, and I want to take this teaching and dovetail it back into the last week's teaching, and then finish with next week's teaching. Six steps to prepare for battle. Six actions that you can take to prepare your horse for battle, to prepare for battle, to prepare for the storm that we are in and that is only going to intensify. This is a vital, vital training, these six steps to preparing for the days that are coming. Brothers and sisters, we are in wild and crazy days. <laughs> and Joseph Parker, quote number one, he said this about a hundred years ago, he said this, the days are evil. But evil days create opportunities for God-sent men and women. So, though we see evil days, they are filled with opportunity for God-sent men and women. But here's what John Wooden said, the legendary coach of UCLA basketball. He made this statement. He said this, when opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. In other words, preparation must come prior to the opportunity if you want to capitalize on that opportunity. And then Benjamin Disraeli, the, the twice prime minister of Great Britain years ago, he made this statement. He said this, the secret of success in life is for a man or woman to be ready for his opportunity when it comes. To be ready for his opportunity when it comes. And so my heart in this teaching is to help you and help me to prepare for the opportunities that are coming in the crazy, evil days that we're living in. Because it will be easy for you and I to despair, to lapse into hopelessness, to go into, into hiding, instead of boldly stepping in by faith to the opportunities that God is creating in the days that we're living in. So that is the journey that we're on. That is the mission for this teaching. And last training, I taught the first two steps, the first two actions to take to be prepared when opportunity comes, to be prepared for battle. And they were these. Number one was continue to be obedient right where God has you now. Now, as we talk about each one of these six steps, all of them, the key to every one of them is keeping our connectedness to Jesus. The key to preparation in battle is that we are connected to the king. Here's what Proverbs 21:31 says. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be victorious in this battle, we must be prepared, but we must more importantly be connected to our King, the victorious one. We've got to stay connected to Jesus, but we've got to be prepared to be able to do that. And so the first step of preparation is continue to be obedient right where God has you now. Number two is clean up your relationships. The enemy will use division and dissension among brothers and sisters and in relationships to cloud and to clog your relationship with Jesus. That power from heaven, clean up, clean up your relationships. Do whatever it takes to live at peace with everyone. So that's last teaching. I'm not going to re-preach that message. But I want to get to number three today and number four today. Number three is this. 
connect to a Jesus community. If you want to be prepared for the day of battle, if you want to be ready to, to navigate and to stand strong in the storm that is coming, the storm that we have entered, you've got to be connected to a Jesus community. Now let's go to uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And I, I want specifically to take up in 15, but here's what's happened. They have just seen Jesus ascend back into heaven. They're coming back from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. They're gathered in the upper room. All of the disciples, Mary, the brothers of Jesus, and a group of women, and a hundred other unnamed people, 120 people in all. And here's what it says in verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons who were there together, together. And that is the key word, who were there together. This group of 120 people would link arms and together face into a coming storm that would buffet them, that would abuse them, that would persecute them, but together they would stand firm. They would not flinch and they would turn the world upside down together. So here's what we learn from this, and that is this, that the Christian life is a communal life. It is a journey that we take together, together. It's a voyage with Jesus that is more like a wagon train than it is a solo trek. It's a wagon train. <laughs> we go together. We face danger together. We go into the unknown together. It's not a solo trek. Now, we have this demonstrated right from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God is speaking as he's getting ready to create man, and he says, let us make man in our image to be like us. God is a community. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Relational community from all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, understand this. God isn't some individual who is far removed. He is a tri-unity, three persons, one essence, the first community. God models community for us in the Trinity. But then the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, came to earth, and almost immediately we see him creating community. He prayed all night, and then he called 12 men to be with him, the scripture says, to be with him. Not to sit in a classroom while he was on a stage, but to literally live in community with him. And if you want to see community in its most authentic form, study the Gospels. Study, study Jesus's interaction with his disciples, the first earthly community where we really see God himself building community. But then Jesus ascends, and we see now in the, in the passage that we're studying, the first church community, the body of Christ forming. And it is a beautiful thing to behold. It is a powerful thing to behold. Now, the conclusion that we come to then is this, that God is a communal God. He's a relational God. He works through groups of people who have intermingled their lives. So... How many times have you heard somebody say, I have my own deal with God. I have my own personal relationship with God. It's a private thing. It's not something that I share with other people. I tried church and it wasn't for me. 
So I just go out into nature. I just go out by the river. I just go out by the ocean and I just worship God on my own. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times. And maybe you have that mindset. Maybe that's what you're saying. So I just want to share a couple things from the word of God that God would say to you if that is the mindset that you hold or if that is the mindset that someone else you know has. Here's a response from scripture. Proverbs 18.1 is written by Solomon who is considered the wisest man who has ever lived. And here's what he says. Proverbs 18.1 says this, he who separates or isolates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Summary, if you are isolated, if you are separated, if you have your own personal deal with God that doesn't include other believers, a Jesus community, Solomon would say respectfully to you, you are both selfish and foolish. You're selfish and you're foolish. There's an old African proverb that says this, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And taken from the African savanna, no doubt this proverb was formed after seeing a, an animal who had separated from the herd and was being eaten for dinner. Satan looks. He is, 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Be sober and be vigilant, for your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is looking for someone to devour. And who does he devour? He devours the one who is isolated, who is separated. Someone told me years ago, isolation is slow death. I would like to modify that to say isolation is certain death. Benjamin Franklin, before the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, he addressed the other, the signers, and he said this. He said, gentlemen, we must all hang together or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. We must hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. Isolation is certain death. The enemy is looking for people who have separated from the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, this Jesus community, is what connects us to Jesus himself. We get to know Jesus through this community. I know for our family that for years after I left ministry in 2007, we were just wandering. We were isolated. We were separated. There was so much pain. There, were, there was so much going on in our lives that we didn't get connected in a meaningful way to the body of Christ. And it cost us dearly. It cost our children dearly. Uh, we have paid for it in many ways, but in the last few years, we have reconnected to a meaningful community of Jesus-loving people, and life has is resurging in, through, in and through our relationships. We're watching healing. We're watching health, but it has only been as we have connected to a Jesus-loving community. And if you want to be prepared for the day of battle, if you want to be ready when the storm comes, you must connect to a Jesus-loving community. Isolation is slow death. 
Isolation is certain death. Now, I want to acknowledge something, and that is this. Community is messy. And many of you have been hurt in communities. So have we. I have been one who has caused pain in community. I've both caused and received it. If you're going to be part of a Jesus community, just prepare. It is not going to be easy. There will be pain. There will be struggles. But it is worth it. If we do not hang together, my friends, we will certainly hang separately. The enemy is looking for isolated, separated people who are selfish and foolish. Be wise. Connect with a Jesus community. Do whatever you have to do to do it. Count the cost. So that's number three. Number four is simply this. Cultivate your prayer life. Cultivate your prayer life. Not only connect to a Jesus community, but cultivate your prayer life. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. It says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. To prayer. This is heavy on my heart. As I see Christian people, the body of Christ, looking to the government, looking to so many different places to see our country restored, instead of getting down on our knees and crying out to God. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I touch them and heal their land. But it is prayer, brothers and sisters. It is humbling ourselves before God in prayer that God will come to us. And it concerns me that when we call uh, for, for a gathering to rally or to picket or to demonstrate, you can get hundreds of people, but call for a prayer meeting and you can barely get anybody to show up. I want to point out four things that are true of the prayer life of this early church. And we see them all in verse 14. It says, number one, they were all with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. The word devote literally means to vow or to commit to a solemn act, to give direct time to an activity. This is not the mindset of, I will pray or I'll get to it when I get around it. This is top priority. I will not go to bed without prayer. I will not get up in the morning without prayer. I will devote myself. I will vow and commit to prayer. And my question to you is, how committed are you to building your prayer life? I hear so many tell me, tell me I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray. And brothers and sisters, listen. <laughs> Here's how you learn how to pray. By praying. You just start. Prayer is communication with God. Prayer is, is just opening your mouth and opening your ears and beginning a dialogue. You it's like a child beginning to walk. They didn't say to their parent, I don't know how to walk. They just started getting up and they fell down. They picked themselves back up. They fell down. But before long, they were running across the living room. And we were taking video of them and laughing and cheering them on. Prayer is the same way. You got to just 
get going. You got to start. How many things in your life have you learned by applying yourself? When we came out of the womb, the only thing we knew how to do essentially was eat, sleep, poop, and scream. But over the course of our lives, we've learned thousands of things. Dear friends, it's a heart attitude that, that helps us to begin to learn how to pray. We have to commit to it. And the, the, the believers were absolutely committed to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They were committed to learning how to pray and committed to praying. And they were committed. Why? Because this is what they saw Jesus do. Those disciples watched Jesus repeatedly over and over pull himself away from the crowd, go out into the wilderness and pray. Here's what it says in Luke 5, 16. It says, but the news about him was spreading even further and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. One of my favorite passages in Mark chapter 1, verses 32 through 35, it says that as the sun set, when the time that Jesus should be putting his feet up and letting his hair down and taking it easy and relaxing at the end of the day, the whole town came to his doorstep. They brought all the sick, demon-possessed, and at sundown, Jesus began to cast out demons and heal the sick. And no doubt, late into the night, probably past midnight into one or two in the morning. Jesus is healing, laying hands on people. But it says, before it was light the next morning, Jesus got up and he went out into a solitary place and he was praying. He had every excuse to sleep in, but he wouldn't do it. He understood that connection with the Father, communication with the Father was the lifeline of everything he did. And despite the late night, Jesus was up before dawn and he was out and he was praying. And that picture has tattooed itself to my brain. Brothers and sisters, this early church was founded on a commitment to pray, a vow to learn how to cultivate a prayer life, to learn how to pray. But secondly, they were entirely contributing to prayer, not just absolutely committed to prayer, but entirely contributing. It says in verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In other words, this wasn't just the spiritual people. This wasn't just the prayer team or the pastor or the elder or the mom's in touch group or the crazy lady with purple hair who's running around laying hands and praying for everybody. Everybody was praying. Everybody was praying. No one was left out. And in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, Paul zeroes in on who should be leading this movement of prayer, this commitment to prayer. He says this, I want men everywhere. I want men everywhere to pray. I want the men to lead lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. In other words, with a pure heart, with a calm heart, with a faith-filled heart, I want men to lead in prayer. Men, if you're listening to me right now, I want to challenge you in your own personal life. Be self-led in your prayer life. In your family, initiate prayer with your wife and with your kids. It's going to be uncomfortable initially because 
you haven't done it. There's going to be a period of transition where it's going to be very uncomfortable. Battle through it. Begin to lead in obedience to Scripture. Men are to lead in prayer. And I will tell you, there is no more masculine posture in all of history and creation, in all of the world, than a man on his knees with his hands lifted up in dependence upon Almighty God. That is the most powerful masculine position on the planet on the planet. And if you want a place to pray with other men on Thursday mornings, I host a prayer meeting via Zoom with guys from all over the United States, 6.30 a.m. to 7.10, Thursday mornings, Pacific Standard Time. Leave a note underneath this, this podcast or underneath this YouTube channel for me, and I'll get back to you. I'll give you the link. I'll post that link. You can join us on Thursday mornings, men, to pray, to link arms, and to battle, to fight, to war with the enemies of our soul, with the demons of hell, and fight for people's souls, fight for people's livelihoods, fight for people's spiritual vitality. But they were absolutely committed, and they were entirely contributing to prayer. Everyone was praying. But thirdly, they were utterly convicted about their praying. It says this, with one mind, with one mind, that is the word homothumadon. We talked about it in the last training. It means together with hot blood. Together with hot blood. It means fierce. It means passionate. It means common fire. I have been to prayer meetings where I, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. You wonder, do people have any fire in their bones? They can go to a Seattle Seahawks game and they will lose their voice screaming and yelling for something that is so trivial in comparison with this war and this battle for the human souls of people. But we come to a prayer meeting and we start to pray and it's as if we're half asleep, we're in a coma. Not the church, not this group of people. They were with one mind, utterly convicted, together with hot blood. When they prayed, there was conviction in their praying. You see this with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. He was so determined to get an answer from God that he goes to the top of Mount Carmel and he literally curls up in a fetal position and begins to intercede that God would send rain on a land that hadn't had rain for three years. And God answers his prayer with a downpour of rain. But he was so passionate about prayer being answered that he literally goes into a physical fetal position as if giving birth to the answer to his own prayer. You see Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to go over there right now in Acts chapter 4. They have just come out of a night in jail because of they're teaching and preaching about Jesus. And they are standing before the most powerful group of men in all of the nation. And they're standing in front of this group of men. And they're being threatened. And they're being told they cannot preach in the name of Jesus. And they answer boldly, Peter says. He says, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And it says, when they threatened them further, they let them go. And they go back to the Jesus 
community that they're connected to. And it says, and they gave the report. And it says in verse 24, chapter 4 of the book of Acts, when they heard this, when the whole group heard this report, they lifted their voice to, voices to God with one accord. It was the whole group crying out to God. And what happened? Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They were all committed entirely, utterly convicted, fire in their bones, passion in their spirits for prayer. And when they prayed, heaven moved. James chapter 5 says this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man gets a lot done. It avails much. <laughs> So brothers and sisters, when we come to God with a fire in our bones and we begin to pray because, because we understand God has called us to fight for the souls of people that if they do not come to know Jesus, if they do not repent, their eternity, they are lost in hell. Have you taken responsibility, I ask you, for your neighbors? Have you taken responsibility for the people you work with? God has placed you strategically in your neighborhood. With your neighbors surrounding you, he's placed you strategically in your family. He's placed you strategically in the place where you work. And the people around you who do not know Jesus, those are your assignment. And when you grab hold of that, the weight of that will create fire in your bones, a desperation, an urgency, because you know in yourself there's no way that you can turn their hearts towards Jesus. It's got to be a supernatural work of God. And that's when we begin to pray at our best, when we step into the place that God has called us as ambassadors representing him in this world. Aliens, foreigners, sojourners, pilgrims, we don't belong here. We are here to call people out of this dying, rotting corpse of a world into a world that will never end, into a kingdom of light, out of a kingdom of darkness. And brothers and sisters, when you step into that calling, when you begin to obey the mission of Jesus, there will be a fire that begins to rise up in you because you feel the desperation, you feel the heaviness of that burden, and you, re you, you accept it gladly, but you understand it will only be fulfilled by the power and the authority, the kingdom power and authority of Jesus himself. And that comes through prayer. It comes through prayer. And finally, their prayer was characterized by a constancy. It says they were continually praying, continually praying. The great old hymn writer, James Montgomery, he said this, Prayer is the Christian's vital breath. It is the Christian's native air. We pray like we breathe. We breathe out sin. We breathe out with repentance. We breathe in. Spirit of God, fill me. We breathe out sin. We breathe in, filling with the Holy Spirit. If we're not praying, we're not breathing. And if we're not breathing, we're dying spiritually. And there are so many Christians essentially who are turning blue, holding their breath. They're not breathing because they're not praying. And you wonder why we have no power, we have no victory, we have no vitality, because prayer is the Christian's vital breath. It is our native air. No prayer, no spiritual oxygen. And we have no power, no authority. 
I've heard many people say, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to pray. Brothers and sisters, really? If you are honest, that is an issue of I don't, prayer is not important to me. Because what we don't have time for is not important. What we do have time for is what is important to us. That statement is truly, prayer is not important to me. Years ago, Martin Luther, many years ago, was asked by a friend what his plans were from the, for, the, for the day. This is Martin Luther, the great reformer of Germany. And he said, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I will spend the first three hours in prayer. <laughs> wow. I have so much to do that I will spend my first three hours in prayer. Susanna Wesley, pastor's wife, mother of 10 children, like a bunch of chicks around a mother hen, knew the importance of prayer. And she told her kids and trained her kids, when I pull my apron up over my head and I'm, I'm, I'm literally covered in my apron, you are to leave me alone and because I am praying, I am seeking God. And that woman gave birth to and raised John Wesley and Charles Wesley, who turned Great Britain and have touched the whole world, turned Great Britain upside down. John Wesley had said preached over a million people. Charles wrote almost 7,000 hymns that are still sung today and impacted that culture. And the ripple effect goes comes right out to us today of these two men who were the, the children of Susanna who pulled her apron. She could have easily made an excuse. I don't have time. I have 10 children to raise. But she would pull the apron over her head and spend time alone with God. Friends, I don't have time is not an excuse. That is a heart position that says prayer is not important to me. If prayer is important, if people import, are important, if the power of God is important, if the authority of the kingdom of God is important to you, you will make time for prayer. You don't have time not to pray. You don't have time not to pray. So friends, here, as I conclude, is one final challenge. If you knew that Jesus was sitting in a chair in your kitchen every morning, waiting to converse with you, waiting to fill you with his wisdom, waiting to build relationship with you, waiting to reveal his awesomeness to you, waiting to get to know you, waiting to pour into you, would you take the time to stop and sit and be with him? Or would you, like so many believers, just gallop right on past him, out the door and into your life, barely, if at all, giving Jesus even a thought well, here's what I'm certain of. He is waiting for you. He's constantly waiting for you. And not just every morning, but every moment. Prayer is, is the, the Christian's vital breath. It's why scripture says, pray without ceasing. Continue to repent. Continue to ask for the Spirit of God. Continually asking for wisdom. Continually confessing our dependence on Almighty God for every aspect of our lives. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you. Cultivate your prayer life. That means to foster the growth of, to improve it. And here's my simple challenge. Will you commit to spending time in prayer each day? I'm not asking you to commit to three hours like Martin Luther or two hours like Su Susanna Wesley with you, the apron pulled over her head. 
I'm asking you to start small. Just start with small steps. Start by getting out of bed in the morning and finding a quiet place and just sitting before King Jesus with your palms open in a, in, in, in a posture of surrender with your eyes closed and just say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, here I am, your servant, reporting for duty. Reporting for duty. What would you have me to do today? I pledge my love, my loyalty, and my whole life to you. And start your day with that simple prayer and just sit in his presence and train your ears to begin to, to listen to his response. And if you want extra credit, spend time giving thanks to him for the amazing grace that he's poured upon your life. That is my challenge to you. Start small. And I would encourage you, start early. Start first. Put him first. Do not waltz out the door. Do not waltz into your life until you have sat before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Sovereign of all of heaven and earth, and committed yourself to him. Start there, and then let him take you into a grand adventure of prayer. So brothers and sisters, step number one, continue to be obedient where you are. Number two, clean up your relationships. Number three, connect to a community of people who love Jesus. And number four, cultivate your prayer life. Next week, we'll, we'll finish with the last two. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we worship you, we worship you, we worship you. And Lord, I pray that this teaching will penetrate our hearts and that we will respond to what your spirit is saying to us. We will respond with obedience. And Lord God, you will take us into all that you have for us. We love you. We look at the storm that's coming, but we know that you are our great shepherd. You are our great king. You are our great leader. And we stand firmly behind you, underneath your authority. And we have no fear. No fear. We are prepared for battle. And the victory is yours. And on that rock we stand. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless your week. I'll see you next week on The Wrestling Room, and we'll finish Acts chapter 1 with the last two principles. See you then.